Hey y'all, this is Dr. Amber Thornton here with the Different Perspective Podcast. I am a clinical psychologist who is passionate about mental health, wellness, self-care, culture, diversity, and sharing all the ways I believe black communities, people of color, and other marginalized groups can live their very best lives. Just a disclaimer that while I love that you are listening to this podcast, this is not a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. I am not your psychologist, but I am committed to sharing what I know to assist you in living a very happy, healthy, and thriving life. So with that being said, let's get to it. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Amber Thornton here with the Different Perspective Podcast. Today I have another really, really special guest. Our guest today is an assistant professor at Wright State University in the School of Professional Psychology, where he teaches multicultural psychology. He is also a board-certified clinical psychologist. My guest today's area of expertise is research and clinical work with black males. Specifically, he focuses on understanding and developing culturally appropriate interventions for black males, psychopathology, as well as barriers to academic success for this population. Our guest today has written four books on black male mental health, black males in the criminal justice system, and academic achievement. So our guest today is Dr. Stephen Niffley. Hey, Dr. Niffley. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, no problem. I'm happy that you're here, too. So... Um, just to give people some background on how we know each other, um, Dr. Niffley is a professor at the university that I went to for graduate school, Wright State University School of Professional Psychology. Um, and I think I've actually talked about Wright State on the podcast before because I had an amazing experience at Wright State University. And I'm, you know, anytime someone asks me about grad school and clinical psychology, I'm always telling them about our school. <laughs> so, and it's funny because Dr. Niffley, correct me if I'm wrong, you started teaching in 2014, right? That's correct. 2014. Okay. And so it's, it, it's funny because you went in right as I was coming out. And so I think I remember, cause you know, it's a small school. Um, and I think at that time, Dr. Dobbins was also grad or retiring, um, which is another, he was a very influential black male psychologist in the program. And so there was a lot of talk and chatter around that time about another black male professor coming in. <laughs> this, this is true. And I, I realized that when I got there, there was some, some awesome, awesomely big shoes to fill. Uh, and I'll try my best since I've been there uh, to do that. Yeah. Well, you know, I think you've done a great job and I think you've you filled in and fit in perfectly because I know um, a lot of us were kind of anxious to know who was going to come in because, of course, we love Dobbin so much. But I think SOPP has really appreciated having you there. And you've, I don't know, it just kind of seems like you've hit the ground running um, once you got there. So I know that they really appreciate you. Um, and I certainly appreciate being there. Uh, uh, the, the legacy that White State has. Uh, especially in regards to diversity, uh, is unmatched. Uh, and I'm just happy to contribute to that legacy. Totally agree. And I'm, you know, as an alumni of Rice State, I'm just super excited to see that that legacy is continuing because I was a little worried once I left that, you know, um, new faculty coming in and things would change and become less diverse, but it doesn't seem like that's happening. 
No, no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Good. It makes me miss it. I haven't been back in a while. Um, but also, I wanted to let the listeners know, you and I have worked on a few things. Um, I know we did the Ohio Psychological Association. We did a presentation together in 2016, maybe? Oh, was it that long ago? Ooh. It does. That's crazy. I think it was 2016. Um, And then we were going to try to work together on something else, but that fell through. But maybe there'll be other opportunities in the future. I'm I'm hoping so. I'm I'm sure that there will be. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, so I brought you on for a reason to talk today with us about Black masculinity, because that is definitely your area of expertise. Um, So I kind of just want to jump in and first just really ask you, what led you to become a psychologist? Yeah, so um, I guess as I I think about it, there's uh, there's a couple of reasons why I got into the field. So the the first one was I, uh, as an undergrad student, I worked at a a foster care home uh, as a residential counselor. And in that position, uh, it was my job to provide kind of milieu therapy uh, for the kids, and it was predominantly uh, black males, and they were all probably about 10, 11 years old. Uh, and one of the things I was always very frustrated with, especially someone who was a sophomore and a, and a junior in college, was the lack of skills that I had to really help these kids. Mm-hmm. So I could provide them a, a, a good relationship as best as I could, but these kids are really struggling with some mental health issues um, that I just didn't have the skills to be able to do. And as much as I wanted to take them all home, uh, I couldn't. And so the alternative to that was to be able to help them uh, to be the healthy males that they could be, as well as to come from uh, healthy families. And I knew that I needed to be a psychologist in order to do that. Yeah. Uh, also, um, uh, I had a, a mentor at the University of Louisville uh, where I went to undergrad uh, who happened to be a black male psychologist. Mm-hmm. And I had never seen a black male psychologist in my entire life. In mm-hmm. fact, he was actually the first black male doctor uh, that I'd ever met. Um, and so I reached out to him. I actually sat outside his door every day for a month. Oh. Uh, trying to get a, a, a meeting with him because I believe so strongly and, and wanting to meet him and uh, what he could do for me as, as just a model for what I could be in the future. And uh, he suggested going into psychology as a career. Um, you know, I, I, I jumped on that and um, he helped write my letter and has helped support me since then. Wow. Uh, lastly, I just see psychology as a, a mechanism for healing uh, various types of trauma, specifically racial trauma, mm-hmm. uh, and it's an avenue to help promote uh, this ideal of self-determination uh, for marginalized groups uh, such as African Americans. Right. That's awesome. And I, you know, I hear that a lot when I ask people what led them to become psychologists, you know, just the idea of wanting to help people and then realizing that you can't help them in the way that you really want to. And then that leading you to pursue psychology to to get the skills so you can really help in a really um, significant way. So that's dope. And I also I really understand the power of like meeting the first black psychologist you ever meet. Like, I know that was my experience when I went to Wright State School of Professional Psychology. That was the very first time I had ever met black psychologists, just having like Dr. Dobbins. Yeah, Dr. Dobbins, Dr. Warfield, Dr. Winfrey, um, Dr. McCarley there. Like, it was just, it was like heaven. (laughs) I just really appreciated it. And I just, 
yeah, I really looked up to them the whole entire time, and I still do. So I, I definitely know what you mean, just meeting someone like that for the first time and being able to see yourself in them and then also envision yourself in this field too. So what are some, you know, I know that you are, you identify as a black male and you're also a psychologist. So what do you think are some of the unique experiences that you have as a psychologist who is also a black male? Yeah, so um, I think because of that, uh, there's uh, some unique opportunities that come up for me as a psychologist out in the field. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, for example, I do a lot of work with uh, community police relations, uh, both on the community side in terms of, um, you know, helping build that relationship between the community and law enforcement, uh, but then also on the training side uh, when it comes to uh, providing kind of like diversity training uh, related to issues concerning uh, folks I identify, such as myself. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that really kind of stands out to me is the, um, the opportunities to mentor. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, like when I go into schools and I'm working with young black males, you know, my goal is for them to, to never be able to say uh, kind of what I've indicated here about reaching uh, a junior in college uh, before you see another black male doctor uh, mm -hmm. of any kind. And, um, you know, one of the things I always feel most proud of is there any space I leave? I know that those youth will not be able to say that. Um, you know, I'm very mindful of being able to introduce myself as Dr. Nifley the first time, uh, just so they can kind of get an idea that, that yes, this, this black guy before them uh, has those credentials. Um, and then they'll remember that to say, oh, yeah, I remember there was this guy uh, that I met. Uh, you know, he talked about some stuff. I don't really remember what he was saying, uh, but I do remember that he was a doctor. Uh, and that's very meaningful to me. Um, there are about 1%, uh, black males make up about 1% uh, of all uh, psychologists uh, in the U.S. Uh, and so the, the chances of you running into two at a time uh, is, is pretty rare. Uh, but it's been my goal to, to help uh, help increase those numbers. And so uh, not only uh, being helping to expose other black males to the fact that folks like myself exist, mm -hmm. uh, but then helping them to get there, uh, to get to the spaces where I am, uh, has been very important to me as well. Uh, Spalding, uh, when I graduated from there, I've been the, the second black male uh, to graduate from the program uh, in its history. Um, and I, whenever, whatever school I went to, I wanted to make sure that that was not the case, um, uh, wherever I was moving forward. Right. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, again, I know that you're doing a great job at Wright State because I know some of the people or some of the black men that you um, are supervising and kind of advising. And I know that they're going to soon be in the field and doing great things, too. So. I like that. And also, you know, when you were saying it's important for you to introduce yourself as Dr. Nifley, that resonates with me, too, because I think, you know, sometimes I'll talk with like my white colleagues about just using the title doctor. And I think, you know, I've had to explain to them, you know, that for people of color, it's really important to use that title because there's so few of us. And so, you know, many times we are maybe some of the first ones in our families to to receive that title or maybe the first ones to go to college, but also it's important for young black people to know that, you know, there are black doctors and there are black psychologists. And so that's why we, we prefer to use that title. So I'm glad you said that. 
Agree, agree. But I also want to add the caveat that it's only one time. So I will introduce myself that way. But then after that, you know, I, I would prefer to be called, you know, Steve, Steven, Mr. Steve, yeah. or whatever the title is there. Because then I want to automatically just flatten the hierarchy. Uh, so they know that I'm also approachable, too. I, I've had, uh, mm-hmm. it, was, it was at the, the gym, and um, uh, a, a black male that I work with through uh, an organization at a, a local college here was saying that he had wanted to reach out to me for, for mentorship because uh, he had wanted to get into the field as well. Uh, but he was too intimidated uh, to come up and have a conversation with me about it. Aww. And, you know, like that, that was saddening to me uh, because I never thought of myself as, as uh, unapproachable like that. Um, so I was like, you know, well, if, if you just call me Steve or Steven or, or Mr. Steve or, or whatever, you know, like hopefully that will, will, will lower that barrier down mm-hmm. some for you, you know. So, yes, I'm definitely in, in these spaces I will be referred to as such. But, you know, just just know that I'm also just Steven at the same time. Yep. I like that. I think the balance is really important. Um, So, okay, now I'm going to start asking you more about your special area of interest. And I know you already told me that you can be long winded. So (laughs) if I interrupt, Uh, you know, I'm a a professor by training. So that's that's what we do. (laughs) Right. So if I interrupt you, just know it's because it's, it's all in love. No, no hard feelings at all. Um, So, First question. I know that, again, your area of expertise is masculinity, specifically for black men. And so the first question I think is really important to to discuss is just what exactly is masculinity? What do you mean by that? Um, You know, what is it? How is it developed? Tell me that first. Okay, so uh, to me, masculinity represents uh, an identity that's associated with the expression and performance of a, a framework of male norms that have been agreed upon through social consensus. So this idea that we are, n- are not born, we're born males from a, a, a sex standpoint, but we become men and engender masculinity through this socialization process that happens. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to me, gender is a, a socially constructed construct and masculinity is, is a part of that. So we've learned how, to be masculine, uh, if you will. Um, and so that's kind of what masculinity means to me. Okay, that makes sense. And so is that, because I think right now we hear a lot about the term patriarchy, um, is masculinity and patriarchy the same thing or are they different or are they related in some way? So they are certainly related, uh, but they are two distinct uh, constructs. So, you know, whereas masculinity is this expression and performance piece, that sets this framework of, mass, of, of male norms. Patriarchy is really the, the social institution uh, that maintains the power that's associated uh, with a very narrow expression of masculinity. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's kind of how I see the distinction there. Okay, that makes sense too. Um, so now, because again, I want to really make sure that we're focusing on Black men specifically, how might the experience of masculinity be unique? for black men? So when I uh, am thinking about uh, black males specifically, just even in the term black males, mm-hmm. uh, it highlights that there's a, a, a intersectional kind of racialized masculinity piece. 
so there's this uh, oppressed identity in the form of being black that is also combined with this more privileged identity when it comes to being male. Uh, and both those kind of like are put together to create uh, this racialized masculinity that has both its uh, challenges and opportunities. Um, so the traditional way that masculinity is developed is through um, reinforcement. Uh, so if I am a male and I'm constantly given a Tonka, a Tonka truck, um, and then I reach for, um, uh, I don't know, like a, a Barbie doll, and I'm told, no, 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 that's not what boys do. Mm-hmm. Um, then I learn quickly that, well, a talker truck is where it's associated with being male. Right. And so it's kind of what the traditional part of learning how to be a, a male comes about is through this reinforcement of what is considered masculine behavior and what is considered more uh, stereotypical feminine behavior. Mm-hmm. But for black males, it has uh, an intersectional piece because we learn uh, what it needs to be a black male through uh, relationships uh, and exposure in addition to reinforcement. So yes, we get the, you know, the, the slap on the hand, if you will, uh, when we reach for the Barbie doll, but we also see others performing their masculinity and the consequences of the wars that they get uh, based on their performance. And that's a, a different part of the process uh, for us in terms of how we develop. So it's not just reinforcement, but it's also this strong relational piece mm-hmm. uh, that is so central uh, to the development of Black masculinity. Wow. You know what? I feel like I know a lot of things, but that's something I didn't know. <laughs> that's mm. completely new to me. So why do you think that relational aspect is something that we see for Black men, but not necessarily other men? What is that about? Well, because it's a, a part of our culture. Uh, we are a collectivist culture. Uh, and so because of that, uh, our learning is, um, is, is interrelational. Uh, so we learn in context uh, with others. Yeah. Um, and so when, we, when we're around people, we're constantly gathering knowledge, constantly observing, because that's the culture that we come from, uh, to say that, you know, you don't learn things in isolation. You learn through... Uh, your relationships and exposure uh, to others. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've taken that over the generations, and that's how our learning about our gender uh, has been passed down to us, is to say, you know, look at how that person is responding and interacting related to their gender expression. Uh, that's how I should be doing, too. Or, wow, look at how that person is being, uh, you know, is receiving consequences for how they are performing their gender well, maybe that's not how I should do it. Um, you know, uh, for a lot of for for a lot of males, white males specifically, they're kind of handed this this rule book uh, because most of our norms are built on, on their expression of masculinity, and so they kind of come into the world with this prepackaged version of what it means to be a male uh, because they can see it all around them as to how we how they are supposed to perform their masculinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we come into this world with that book also, but we need someone to help us to interpret uh, the contents because it doesn't always fit with our, with the masculinity that we uh, see in terms of the people that are around us. Mm-hmm. And so those people that we have a relationship with help us with their interpretation. Wow. That's deep. <laughs> that's cool. Okay. 
That is really cool. It makes a lot of sense. And I think it goes back to, like you said, that intersectional piece, the intersection of gender and race. You know, it really does make a difference. And I can see how that relational component kind of comes out that way. Huh. Okay. So I know that you recently have written a new book um, that probably talks a lot more in depth about Black masculinity. Um, And the book is titled Out of Knowledge of Self, Black Masculinity, Psychopathology, and Treatment. So can you tell us about this book? Sure. So there's this this, uh, African proverb that says, if you conquer the enemy within, Mm -hmm. the enemy without can do you no harm. Uh, and so when I think about the, the challenges that black males are facing, a lot of it has to come from the fact that we have not conquered that enemy within. And that enemy within is referring to uh, internalized racism, mm-hmm. uh, internalized sexism, uh, et cetera. Uh, because uh, we have been told as a culture uh, that there's a very, very narrow way that we can perform our, our masculinity as black males. Uh, out of all of the groups, as that with a code book I was telling you about before, uh, we are the ones that hold the, the most rigid to what those rules say. So we don't like to deviate from what it says in the, in the rule book about what it means to be a male, even more than the people that actually wrote the book themselves, uh, which is white males. Mm-hmm. But because it conflicts with that culture that I was telling you about before, because it's very individualistic, it's very competitive in nature, uh, it's uh, predicated on this idea of domination and conquering, and those are inconsistent with the values uh, that black males that, that have been passed down to black males across the generations. Mm-hmm. And so, because of that, the, the enemy within is is really kind of the, destroying us. Uh, in a lot of ways, uh, there's this model called the biopsychosocial model of uh, racialized stress uh, by Carter and colleagues. And essentially what it says is that the more we hold on uh, to rigid ways of being black males, uh, and the more uh, likely we are to experience both physical and mental health uh, issues. And so uh, what I wanted to do was to really have a conversation to talk about first, well, what is racial trauma? You know, how does that impact us as black males? And then also to talk about, well, what is this intersectional piece between gender and race and how does it influence how we develop as black males? Then talking about, well, what can we do from a mental health standpoint, knowing that those two areas uh, when they intersect in a negative way, can have a very negative impact on our mental health. And then offering up some uh, innovative ideas for therapists, as well as black males themselves, and those that work with black males, about how we can best enhance uh, the racialized, uh, racialized masculinity identity uh, of that particular population in hopes of reducing uh, negative mental health symptoms. Wow. It sounds very comprehensive and very thorough. Um, And I'm sure in the book, you talk a little bit more about the connection between masculinity for Black men and mental health. But can you tell us a little bit more how those two things are related? Because I know that you kind of were saying that when it when the rules are too rigid, it can lead to mental health um, symptoms. So tell us a little bit more how masculinity and mental health are connected. Sure. So there's this uh, ideal uh, that was developed uh, probably about 
maybe 15, 20 years ago called gender role strain. Mm -hmm. And essentially what it's referring to is that, um, when, uh, a black, when a, a male specifically is, is unable to live up to the, the norms, uh, that society has set for him, uh, he starts to feel, uh, some conflict, uh, within his identity because, you know, he's been told his whole life that this is what it means to be a male. And when he's unable to achieve that, there's a conflict that develops for him. Now, for black males, that conflict is heightened because it's not only just what he's being told based on his gender about what it means to be uh, a black male, but he's also being told certain things based on his race mm -hmm. as well. So, and there's a conflict that develops. So from a gender standpoint, you know, he's being told to be dominant, uh, to be a conqueror, uh, to do all those types of things. But then from a, a racialized side, uh, he's also being told that being dominant or being a conqueror are not only things that you can't obtain, but if you do those things, it can actually be more harmful uh, than beneficial for you. And so there's a conflict that develops because on one end, he's being told to be dominant, but then on the other end, he's being told to be docile because if he's not, uh, his, his black body will be punished. Uh, and because of that conflict, uh, there's like a, uh, like a mental health issues can develop, uh, because, uh, there's anxiety that can develop because of that, uh, there's depression that can develop because of that, because when you experience that conflict and you realize that you're in what seems to be an impossible situation, mm -hmm. uh, you, you can start to get sad about those things. Mm -hmm. Or on the flip side, if you, uh, feel that you need to endorse all these hypermasculine ways of being, you can feel anxious uh, when you are not living up to those standards. Yeah. And so, like, both of those can contribute to mental health issues. Interesting. You know, that makes sense because I recently was talking to, I think, maybe one of my cousins who is a, a black man. Um, and he was kind of, I think we were talking maybe recently after one of, you know, another black man, a male had been shot and killed by the police. And so he was kind of just talking about his experience of kind of like you said, you know, in some ways he feels pressure to be this very dominant masculine person but then in society if he does that too much that could get him killed or hurt and he was just saying how confusing that is and how tiring it is and I think you just spoke to that really well um, I'm sure that probably is very confusing and, and it creates a lot of dissonance and that's definitely not healthy yeah there's a lot of conflict so you know uh, as, as black males we are celebrated for being athletes and a significant part of the athleticism is being aggressive on the field. So on the field, we hit a guy real hard uh, and, and tackle him. And, you know, we get money for that. You know, but then if we're out in the street and we also hit a guy real hard, uh, then our chances of going to jail or to prison increase exponentially. And there's different labels that are associated with us. Uh, so in, in one, you know, setting, you're labeled a thug, but then in another setting, you're labeled, uh, you know, this, this beast, you know, uh, of, of a man. Right. And one label has like a positive connotation to it, while another one has a negative connotation to it, even though it's referring to the same behavior. Mm-hmm. Wow. Makes a lot of sense. 
So in your book, I know that there are a lot of really good chapters, but I know like one of the final chapters in the book, it kind of outlines a model of therapy to utilize with Black men, um, you know, that is collaborative and it's cooperative. So I kind of want to know more based on your writings and your research, what factors do you think should be included in therapy with Black men that would help to optimize that experience for them? Yeah, so I'm thinking that the uh, first off, uh, a therapist cannot just jump into therapy with, with black males uh, because uh, that assumes that there's a, a positive rapport that's being built. Uh, but for a lot of black males, uh, the avenues to which they came to sit in the therapist's chair are probably not uh, the best. Uh, so either they've been uh, arrested and this is like a court-mandated treatment or they have been um sent from a, uh, a psychiatric ward uh, because that's traditionally where most of our black males are coming from uh, is having been in the emergency room because uh, that's where we typically get all of our uh, physical and mental health treatment uh, from is through the emergency room setting mm-hmm. or they're being referred uh, from a, a friend that they trust uh, or a, a lay pastor or, or minister uh, or some along those lines, that things have just gotten so bad uh, that this is kind of like their last hope. I traditionally ask my clients, uh, you know, well, what brings you here, or how did you get here? And no one ever says, you know, Dr. Niffley, you were my first choice. Mm-hmm. You know, usually I'm their, their, their last option. I'm their last hope. And either then it's like a, a half hope. And so the first thing we have to do is to reduce the stigma uh, associated with just being uh, seeking out mental health services. An important part of that is just uh, building uh, mental health literacy. Yeah. And so really taking the time to explain to the black male, well, well what is therapy? What are we going to do in here? Uh, I promise I'm not hooking you up to any sort of electrodes. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to shock you. Uh, there's no couch for you to lay on uh, because if there was, I would be taking naps all the time. <laughs> uh, you know, just doing all of that. Yeah. Um, and then from like a, a therapeutic standpoint, I think it's important to think about uh, well, what should be some guiding themes for treatment, mm-hmm. uh, specifically for black males. So thinking about the idea that the treatment should be collectivist, uh, should be very narrative-based uh, because as black people, you know, oral tradition is so important uh, to us. You know, uh, the idea of passing down knowledge verbally is, is more meaningful to us than actually writing it down. Mm-hmm. Also thinking through if there's a, a spiritual component to it. Uh, so I had an opportunity to go to South Africa uh, last year, year before last. And while I was there, I learned this idea of uh, Ubuntu. Mm-hmm. And Ubuntu refers to this idea that we are all kind of spiritually connected to each other. Um, and that should extend to the therapeutic process as well. Because if I see that I'm spiritually connected to um, my brother over here, uh, then I'm less likely to, to harm him or be aggressive because I see myself in him as well as he should see himself uh, in me. Yeah. Also thinking about being experiential, so being very hands-on, and also just lastly being historically inclusive. And so thinking through this idea that uh, the black male that is sitting in your in your chair, in your space, uh, is coming from a long line of black males that have experienced racism and discrimination and racial trauma and has went through the civil rights movement. And that black male that's sitting in your space 
I was carrying that narrative with them. And uh, they're not going to be able to heal appropriately uh, until they kind of wrestle and grapple with what that narrative means uh, for them in this space and time. Mm-hmm. Wow. I just, I, I really can appreciate how, you know, because of course, you know, I teach African-American psychology for the undergrad psych department online and just so much of what you said definitely embedded in it is, you know, those Afrocentric philosophies and the African-centered, you know, themes and traditions. And I think, you know, what that means is that it's really important for those things to be embedded in the work that we do with Black men, um, you know, in the themes that you talked about, but also just in the relationship. Like you said, it, it really does need to be collective and collaborative. Um, so I can appreciate that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just think it's so, so important. Uh, and, you know, as we had mentioned before, only 1% of us are represented in psychology. And so um, even though these do have an African-centered lens to them, you know, these are all things that we can do regardless of, of race uh, or gender uh, in the therapy room. Uh, so we can all work on being collectivists. We can all work on being more narrative-based. Uh, these can be tools that we add uh, to our tool belts, um, you know, even if we don't come from the same, same spaces and backgrounds. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. And I like that you said that because it it empowers other clinicians of different cultures and walks of life to feel empowered to do this type of work. I mean, because realistically, with, like you said, only 1% of Black men being psychologists, um, and I think the statistic for Black women in psychology is like 3%, I think, of oh, wow. yeah. Black women. Um, and so realistically, we can't be doing all the work. You know, we really do need our colleagues to step in and feel empowered enough to do this. So I, I appreciate you saying that, too. Um, so one of the last things I want to ask you is, you know, I'm sure that, you know, maybe today there might be some black men listening to this and kind of thinking about how they can learn more. Um, so what tips might you have for you know, black men who are interested in learning more about their identities, um, but also their mental health, too? Sure. Um, the, the first thing we'll offer up is that because we do learn uh, about what it means to be a black male from our relationships that we develop, uh, find a ways to develop relationships with a variety of different types uh, of black men uh, and black males. So, you know, it, it saddens me because it's true and we're true in a lot of ways from our own experience when, you know, guys will talk about how, like, Uncle Phil raised them. You know, uh, and just, you know, like, like from, from first prince and just thinking through, like, that can't be the only, uh, relationship that we develop, uh, with someone. You know, we have to be able to find other role models and, and mentors, um, that we can kind of latch on to that will provide a positive model for us. Mm-hmm. And so just really exposing yourself to what different types of masculinity expression can look like. Cause I think if you do that, uh, that will keep you from, really endorsing this hyper-masculine way of being in the world uh, that has been more harmful to us than good. Yeah. I think also being uh, critical consumers of the media, uh, in a lot of ways, the media hasn't been the most friendly uh, to the black male experience. You know, if you type in or Google black males um, in Yahoo or in Google or any of those places, most of the time you'll find very sexualized uh, images. 
because that's how society sees us as either these sexualized beings or these criminal beings or these beings that are placed on this earth just to, you know, kind of shut and jive and, and tell jokes uh, and do all of that. Uh, and so if you're not good consumers of, of media, uh, you'll really kind of accept that that is what we're here to be. We're here to be athletes or we're here to entertain folks. Uh, and that's certainly more, that's certainly less than what our experience actually is. You know, we come from uh, inventors and scientists and educators and all types of people that have revolutionized this world, but if you don't know what that history is, um, you know, you're not going to live up uh, to that piece. I also find ways to transcend hyper-masculinity, and one of the ways I would offer up is is uh, kind of really digging into our literature uh, that was written for black males, by black males, uh, by guys such as Richard Wright and Joseph White, uh, James Cone, uh, Joey Degari, uh, you know, reading books like uh, Visions for Black Men by Naeem Akbar, uh, you know, really just kind of digging into those literature uh, to see, you know, like, wow, we, we have a lot to offer in this world. You know, there's a narrative that is counter to what society is telling us to be. Mm -hmm. That's perfect. That's perfect advice. Thank you for that. I'm so happy that you're listening to A Different Perspective podcast. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the podcast so you'll always be up to date with all the new episodes. You can subscribe via iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. Also, please do head over to iTunes to give me a review. This just helps the podcast become more visible and it lets other people know that it's dope. And reach out to me. I love hearing from all of you and I really want to know who you are, how you're doing, and what you'd like to hear from me. So hit me up on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all of them at Dr. Amber Thornton. You can also email me at podcast at dramberthornton.com. All right, so now it is time for a different perspective segment. Um, and of course, this is just the time where I like to just talk out loud and think out loud about something that's happening in society or culture or something that has been of interest to me. And so because we have Dr. Nisley on today, I'm going to kind of just throw the ball in his court and get his perspective on something um, that I've been thinking about a lot. And I think a lot of my listeners have been thinking about a lot um, because Dr. Nifley, I know that I explained to you that most of the listeners uh, identify as black women. And so a lot of times, to be perfectly honest, a lot of the conversations that I have about black masculinity is with other black women. And so with that, I, I saw that as a limitation and which is why I'm really happy that we're having that this discussion today. Um, but I think one thing that I've noticed just in speaking about black masculinity is that um, for many black men, and I think this is something that we can kind of see in our music, we see um, in some of the traditions and some of the norms in black families or black communities is that the idea of masculinity has been so heavily dependent upon um, black women, you know, either being submissive or being in some subservient position. And I think a lot of times, you know, black women also have internalized some of these ideas about black masculinity and kind of internalized some of these ideas about what it means for them to be a woman as well. And so 
things come up like, you know, it's always unacceptable for a man to struggle financially because he has to provide for a family. Or maybe things like, um, you know, it's always the man that has to propose marriage um, or maybe, you know, the woman shouldn't be too independent or too bossy because that, you know, might compromise the man feeling like the man. And so, again, I'm really glad that there are people like you kind of teaching and researching this because it, it makes us think a lot more critically about this topic and what masculinity actually is. Um, but I kind of want to get your perspective on what do we do about, you know, certain types of masculinity that seem to be so heavily reliant upon the status of black women or, you know, to be a black man means that I have to be in a certain position and, and the black woman has to be below that. What do we do about that? And what is your perspective on that? Sure. So uh, I think first thing we have to do is, is name that it's an issue. Uh, and then also really talk about where it is to come from. When we say things like uh, a, a man has to be dominant or, or in control or, or things like that, what we're, really what we're referring to is, is uh, endorsing white patriarchy because that's what that, that system is built upon. Uh, and anytime we um, say that we're going, that, that that's the place that a man and a woman should be in a relationship or in a relationship to each other, uh, that's a system that we have to acknowledge that that's what we're uh, internalizing and endorsing and supporting. And then we have to think about the fact that actually that is uh, not consistent with, um, you know, where, where our roots are um, you know, in Africa and, and all of that. Uh, like, I, it makes you think about uh, Black Panther, because, you know, anytime I get to talk about Black Panther, I'm going I'm to talk about it. Because yes. uh, it's such a, an amazing movie. And you think about it in that particular movie, well, who were the warriors in that movie? You know, it was women, right? Yeah. You know, women were, were well represented in terms of the folks that provided counsel uh, to T'Challa to and, and all of that. And that is not, uh, that is that is consistent uh, with how things are actually are in a lot of cultures in Africa, mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, the, either the, the woman is in charge or there's more of an egalitarian nature. Uh, and uh, when we think about, um, when we don't endorse white patriarchy as much, uh, we actually kind of naturally fall into those roles. Uh, so when we look at, uh, uh, you know, the splitting of chores or fatherhood or things like that and motherhood, what the research has shown is that of all groups, uh, black males and black women tend to be the most egalitarian uh, in terms of having the most fluid gender roles when it comes to determining who's supposed to do what in the home. Mm -hmm. So just naturally, that's your, that's our, our posture to endorse similar things. This is what we saw uh, in Black Panther, uh, but out in the community when we see you know hip hop music or things like that that are really kind of supporting this image of, of Black males being up here and Black women being uh, below that, that that's inconsistent, um, you know, with our, the cultural background that we come from. And so just really just kind of acknowledging that that is indeed an issue and that that's actually not uh, our normal kind of space to exist in. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> um, and I really like you said, just when we kind of adopt that type of 
method or approach it, it really is endorsing white patriarchy you know i think it goes back to what you said maybe those are the rules in that rule book but for us we need to look at those rules and interpret them a little bit differently um which then means that we we are a little bit more egalitarian and that there isn't this this huge power discrepancy within our relationships and within the community based on gender yes and then thinking through that um in traditional white patriarchy masculinity can only exist uh, as an anti-feminine component so in its very nature being masculine must mean that you are hostile or in conflict with anything feminine in nature but when i think about uh how black masculinity works you know black masculinity is a, is a more uh, fluid construct uh and the way that we're thinking about gender now in general is just acknowledging that it's just more on a spectrum so it's not an either or it's a, a both and in terms of endorsing both uh masculine and uh feminine stereotypical feminine characteristics so as a male i can be nurturing to a child, just the same as I can be aggressive and a protector at the same time, and a woman can do that just the same. Right. You know, because um, you know, just because she's a woman doesn't mean that she can't also engender various traits uh, that are considered stereotypical male as, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we see that uh, uh, we see some challenges with that, and the, with the kind of caveat to this egalitarian pieces around finances. Um, uh, and you know just thinking through like is it okay uh, to be in a relationship as a man or as a woman if uh, you know the the man is making less um, and uh, you know does that mean um, because you know one of the concerns that I hear oftentimes is well I don't want to demasculize him uh, because you know the world is doing that enough Uh, and so you know how can I uplift um the black males in my life, um, you know, that does have to come at a, a cost to me as, as a woman. And I'll argue it, it shouldn't have to. Uh, but unfortunately, that's the precedence that's been set. You know, if you think about the civil rights movement, you know, only recently have we been talking about folks like Fannie Hammer uh, or women like her. You know, really the conversation has been centered around the Martin Luther Kings, the E.P. Newtons, uh, all those guys, and not recognizing that, you know, there was plenty of women that were doing things um, that deserved just as much credit and distinction as those gentlemen have as well. Uh, but you know, when we think about uplifting black people, we automatically think of uplifting black men first. Mm-hmm. And I realize that that is anti to our culture, uh, because if we really believe in the idea of uh, egalitarianism or do to all those things, uh, all of us must succeed uh, in order for all of us to get ahead. You know, if only one group gets ahead, um, then that just kind of sets up this hierarchy that we diminish that's similar to this white patriarchy. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And, you know, as you were talking, I was kind of thinking about, again, just intersecting variables like one, I think the conversation we're having is great, but it's also very heterosexist. <laughs> you know, we're, we're assuming that yeah. Like, yeah. women are heterosexual and they're in relationship, you know, romantic relationship together. So that's one thing. And I think um, a lot of hesitancy to break away from some of these power dominant heavy gender roles for men it's just because 
um, there's this fear of if I'm too feminine, then what does that mean about my sexuality? Or, you know, what does that mean about me being a man, even though gender and sexuality don't really have anything to do with one another? Um, That's good. But also, I know that there's also a religious piece, too. You know, we know many Black people identify as either Christian or religious in some way. And we often see these gender roles heavily um, interdispersed into religious material, too. So I, I think that's also sometimes a barrier at times when talking about things like that, too. That is true, and uh, you know, unfortunately, it's because uh, there's not there there isn't a, a lot of well articulated models of, uh, of of powerful women uh, in the Bible uh, for you know for women to, to look to. I mean, you know, there's uh, there's a, a judge and judges that was a, a woman. You know, there's uh, there's just not that many of them, and I, I think that's a that's a problem. Uh, because you know once again if you don't have any models uh, to really look at then it's easy for other folks to to oppress and, and subjugate you mm -hmm. because then you don't have anything to say well actually this is what my experience should be you know uh, and I, I've always found that to be be an issue uh, it's, 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 it's sad and unfortunate that even in today's time but we still have to celebrate whenever there is a, a woman in the pulpit uh, not realizing that women have been preachers and ministers and, and leaders uh, since the beginning of time, really. You know, if you think about uh, some of the earliest uh, leaders that were women in the Bible, um, it's just unfortunate to think that, that that's not always talked about. Yep, I totally agree. How hard is it? Well, I don't know. Have you ever been in a situation where you've had to, where you were talking to a black man and kind of trying to persuade them or convince them that um, being a, a man doesn't necessarily mean having dominance over women? Have you had to have that conversation? And if so, how difficult is having that type of conversation? You know, it is difficult because you can see uh, as the man is talking that he is he is fighting with himself. So, uh, and and actually his his lived experience. So, I myself was raised uh, by a single mom, and, and you know, unfortunately for a lot of us, that's that's a, a very real lived reality. And so, because of that, to to say that uh, a woman should be powerless to be subjugated to you and, and all of that is being tied to what your lived experience was because you know I always saw my mom as this like awesome being who was powerful and able to raise children and do all these things on her own mm -hmm. and so then to be able then to say that that was an outlier uh, and that the rest of these women should, should uh, do not possess that same type of power you know, you can see that 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 conflict uh, as the male is talking about those things, and so you know, I, I point that out uh, to to say, surely you know some powerful women in your life. You, you got a, a big mama or a grandma or an auntie or a mother, some all those lines uh, that is anti all these things that you're saying uh, that a woman should be. And so, how can this woman exist in this world while you're trying to say that all the other women? Uh, should be something different, like, you know, and, and really kind of like having a conversation and dialogue about that. Mm -hmm. 
That makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, I like your perspective on this, so thank you very much. Um, thank that, you. Was, that was really good. It was good to have that conversation. Um, so now, just kind of tell us what is next for you. You know, what what are you working on? What are you going to be doing in the next few weeks or months? But then also, how can the listeners find you or reach out to you if they want to connect with you more? So you know, it's, it's uh, my lifelong goal to really revolutionize how uh, black men think about themselves and how we think about black males. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so all the spaces that I exist are, are an effort uh, to do that. Uh, and so like, I have a, a, a new book that will be coming out uh, at the end of this year called Black Males in the Criminal Justice System. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also currently working on an article uh, highlighting how we can recenter Afrocentrism as a, a model for developing black masculinity off of. Uh, because as as I was referring to before, uh, we've been using the wrong template uh, in order to develop our black masculinity and it has caused us us, uh, and our community significant uh, pain. Um, And if we move back to to our roots, to our African-centered roots, uh, I wonder if that can help alleviate some of that pain, help us to move into the space of self-determination and of acceptance and love for both ourselves uh, and for the brothers that exist around us. So those are kind of like two things that, that I'm working on now. Cool. That's awesome. I'm definitely going to have to check those out. Um, so I'm going to keep in touch with you about those. And again, lastly, how can some of the listeners get in touch with you if they want to reach out and learn more about you? Sure. So, you know, I'm a, I need to step up my social media game. <laughs> Uh, so, you, you know, the, probably the best way to, to reach me is, is via email because, uh, unfortunately, I'm a millennial and am uh, attached at the hip to my phone. Um, and so you can reach me at, at Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N dot Nifley, that's K-N-I-F-F-L-E-Y at right, W-R-I-G-H-T dot E-D-U. Uh, and I will certainly take any questions or, you know, answer uh, anything that I can be of any help that I can be, uh, especially in this area of helping to uplift uh, not only black males, but just the black community in general. Cool. Well, I will be sure to put that email in the show notes. And I'm also going to put some links to some of your books and some articles, too, in the show notes for people to, to take a look at. Well, thank you, Dr. Nibley. It was really fun talking to you. So I appreciate you being on today. Same here. Thank you for having me.